Hi, everybody. Welcome to Horsepower Heritage. I'm Maurice Merrick. And greetings to all of you listening far and wide from Canada to Colombia, from Ireland to Indonesia and everywhere in between. Well, we've got two episodes left for 2022, including this one. And I want to say thank you for a great year. I'm really blessed to have a wonderful audience. I'm truly grateful to all of you. So I hope that wherever you are, your year has been productive and prosperous and all is well with you and yours. All right, so let's talk about today's show. We're going to get right in. My guests are Linda and Daryl Zimmerman. Their father, John G. Zimmerman, was one of the great American post-war photographers, and his work was published in magazines like Sports Illustrated and the Saturday Evening Post. From the mid-50s onward, Zimmerman had a series of assignments that gave him an inside look at the Detroit car makers, as well as racing at Indianapolis and drag strips, and even in the dirt. Now his automotive work has been published in a book called Auto America, Car Culture, 1950s to 1970s. And it's a fascinating record of what was in many ways the zenith of the U.S. auto industry. And the images demonstrate just how deeply the automobile had become embedded in American life. Many of these photos are in color and they're nothing short of spectacular. So if you go to my homepage at horsepowerheritage.com, just click on the section of the website called Exhaust Notes. It's along the top menu. And there's a piece about the book, and you'll see what I mean. Just awesome photos. So get ready because we're turning the clock back to the days of chrome and tail fins with Linda and Daryl Zimmerman. And that's coming up right after this. Hi guys, Maurice Merrick here, and I don't know about you, but I think Santa Claus is a car guy, which is why this year you should definitely put a pint-sized machine on your wish list from Model Citizen Diecast, like Kyosho's 1973 BMW 2002 TII in 118th scale, with doors that open and wheels that steer. Or how about the 1960 Le Mans-winning Briggs Cunningham Corvette in 118th scale by Real Art Replicas? Or a collection of vintage racing Porsches in 143rd scale by Spark? Go to ModelCitizenDieCast.com and use the promo code HERITAGE at checkout and you'll get 10% off your order. Limitations apply. It's Model Citizen Diecast for Christmas because your inner child still wants to play with cars. And now, a look back at the automotive photography of John G. Zimmerman, right here on Horsepower Heritage. Linda and Daryl Zimmerman, thanks for joining me. I'm really excited to talk to you. This book that you guys have produced is fantastic. So thanks for coming on the show. Glad to be here, Yeah, it's Maurice. our pleasure. I'm just amazed by your dad's photography, and I think my listeners are going to be excited to see it, too. I'm going to have photos up on horsepowerheritage.com so people can check them out and links to the book, of course. But um, this is just a wonderful opportunity. I'm really, really excited to talk to you. It's a great opportunity for us uh, letting people know about my father's work and, and the book. We're very excited. It's been an effort over uh, two years between my brother, uh, Greg, my sister, Linda, and myself, and also my mother, Dolores. Yeah. So. You've made this amazing book. It's called Auto America, Car Culture, 1950s to 1970s. Let's talk a little bit about your dad, John G. Zimmerman. Just to give people an idea, he worked for Life Magazine, Sports Illustrated, the Saturday Evening Post. He photographed 
Some very prominent people, including heavyweight champion Joe Lewis, basketball star Wilt Chamberlain, Walt Disney, the Beatles, right, at the Ed Sullivan Show. Of course, American racing driver Phil Hill, the great Phil Hill. And then later in his career, he even did the swimsuit issue for Sports Illustrated. So people know those iconic images of Christy Brinkley and Elle McPherson. That was your dad. Well, he was he was one of the ones. Sports Illustrated used many photographers. My father, I think Linda was at seven issues and seven covers for the swimsuit issue going back to, uh, I think, 1963, which was not the first one. And that was probably the second or third. And then up until 1989, I think, was the last one. Yeah, I know he wasn't the only one, but I think you're being modest because those uh, those photos from the early 80s, like that was when the swimsuit issue was really hot stuff. And that's when a single photographer uh, did the issue. And then after that, it became so big that it took over the whole magazine. And then they had multiple photographers around the world shooting the uh, swimsuit models. Yeah. There you go. I, where should we start? I think we should talk about how your dad got into photography in the first place. You know, he was, uh, and he told this story a lot when he was interviewed, who was an influence on him. He had the good fortune of going to a, a high school in Los Angeles, John C. Fremont High School, and they had the only vocational photography program in the country at the time. And it was a four year program, and it was taught by a Hollywood cinematographer, Clarence Bach. And it produced a number of successful photographers who went on to be in uh, like the LA Times, the newspapers of the area. uh, There were seven or eight photographers on the staff of Life magazine. So it was uh, an excellent program. And actually his first job, he went to the Washington DC Time Life Bureau. And that was through this fraternity of uh, Clarence Box students, they very much paid it forward and helped each other. And wasn't your dad also a photographer in the Navy? Uh, he was. The last year, I think, of World War II, he enlisted. And because of the vocational program at the high school, he had a very polished portfolio to show as uh, samples you know, of his work. So very early in his career, he was accustomed to editorial style photography. Later on, did a lot of studio photography, but my point being that he was very versatile. Your dad was also known as an innovator, even in his own time. One photo that springs to mind is he mounted a camera on the backboard, right, of a basketball hoop during an NBA game, and and he caught Wilt Chamberlain dunking from a perspective that no one had ever seen the game from before. Right. That was done for Sports Illustrated. He also put a camera in the back of a hockey net uh, during a professional game because he wanted to show the action from places that they had never seen it before. So from behind the basketball backboard, from inside the hockey net, he attached cameras to the backs of world champion skiers. Well, it's almost like the GoPro approach now where you can put a camera anywhere. But he was doing that you know, decades ago, and he was doing it with big, bulkier cameras. And your dad was famously meticulous about preparation, right? Like he would take sometimes days prior to the assignment, he would be getting everything just right. A lot of the um, equipment too had to do with lighting, the strobe lights. And 
one uh, neat aspect of the studio photos that he shot, um, and there's a number of them in the book, they look like they could have been done today, you know, uh, the way they're beautifully lit. And so he was really uh, known as a master of lighting. Yeah. And I think the best example of what you're talking about, Linda, is the cover of the book, which is the 1956 Buick Centurion show car. And it looks, as you say, like it was taken yesterday. And then another example in the book on a black background, the Chevrolet Impala from the back, and it's a jewel-like blue color. And the the back side-facing fins and taillights really stand out. And I don't know, uh, Maurice, what you think, but the Centurion on the cover, it looks like it could be shot today, and yet it's and it's such an engaging image because it looks like the Jetsons or like with the glass bubble top from the 1950s, right? It just, it, there's a contemporary aspect to it, but there's also, um, it's history, like nostalgia. Yeah, you know, so just a little background on those cars, because I know you guys aren't really car people. But that was the tail end of the career of a guy named Harley Earl. And he was the first guy in charge of styling, not just at General Motors, but really any American car manufacturer. He literally invented the styling studio. So Harley Earl's famous for acres of chrome, tail fins, two-tone paint schemes, and just wildly optimistic, futuristic design. And GM had a program called the Motorama Shows, and they would take the show on the road. This is the tail end of the Harley Earl era, this 56 Buick Centurion. Harley Earl uh, had mandatory retirement, I think, 1958 when he turned 65. But yes, the most optimistic period, I think, in uh, um, the American car industry. We also have included in the book, like a 1958 story in Sports Illustrated previewing the new cars of 1959 and the designers. And so we have uh, the the magazine spread with Harley Earl and Virgil Exner and Ford's George Walker. Yep. George Walker. So all of that discussion of your dad's technique, his training, his early experience, all of that just to lay the groundwork for people so that when they see the book, they really understand all of the work that went into these photos. I would love to talk about how he came to work in Detroit because he was basically assigned to the Detroit beat for a while, wasn't he? You know, what's so interesting is cars were such a covered feature of these major magazines. And so they would send my dad out to, to do these stories and often they wouldn't even be published in the, in the mid fifties, I guess, you know, time life, they had so much material like I would say about 50 or 60% of the material in the book has never been published before. And that was really neat to come across the, the um, s- stories. And that to me is one of the, the most rewarding things is that um, dad's photos are being seen by a new audience after sitting in storage for 40, 50 years or more. And, you know, the other point, Maurice, is that the, the car was so central, such a central part of the culture that even if he was doing a story, there's a, a photograph of a uh, teenager who made history by swimming across Lake Michigan. She was Canadian. There was a massive parade for her when she went home to Toronto and she's in a convertible, you know, waving to the hundreds and hundreds of people. 
And so sometimes the stories were about something else, but then there were cars that were just so cool looking that we included them too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, your dad was in the right place at the right time at sort of the golden age of American car culture after World War II. And, you know, before we worried about emissions and smog and gas prices and all of that. So the optimism was at its peak, I would argue, right in the late 50s, early 60s, when he was really doing the bulk of this work. But that's not to say that he didn't continue. Um, You know, the book does span the 1950s through the 70s. And of course, he did racing photography, which we'll talk about. But uh, as you look through the imagery, you get a sense of how important the car culture was in those years. Yeah. And my brother uh, referred to, you know, the three or four years ago when when we started this book, really. And the impetus was that our archive is in Pebble Beach. And so we see the Pebble Beach Concours every year and, you know, the how it's grown, especially because we've been here for uh, a couple of decades. And so there's the race car driving, the classic cars, the marquee cars, and we had that whole spectrum that my dad covered through the years. Right. We, we had a show in 2018 at the Center for Photographic Art in Carmel, and that was his early photojournalistic work. It wasn't specifically car work, but we talked to the executive director, uh, Brian Taylor at the time, and he said, well, we're closed during car week. And yet uh, it just seemed like a missed opportunity. And in fact, a year or two later, they did start to do car-related shows during car month. So then just this last year, to coincide with the uh, the publishing of the book, we had uh, this car show, Auto America, at the same Center for Photographic Art Gallery in Carmel, and took advantage of having so many uh, car fans, car aficionados in the area for that month. And that was really fun because a lot of the feedback we got from the visitors, especially the the crowd from Detroit, was that it just, the 50 or so photos just conjured up that era. And they would spend quite a bit of time reminiscing over the details and the various photographs. Yeah. And can I just point out, like, a lot of these photos we're talking about are in color. I don't know if it's the Kodachrome film, but it is vibrant and you feel like you're being pulled right into the photo, like you're in the room. Um, one example being your dad photographed um, the Lincoln styling studio. And so you've got all these guys at Lincoln looking over, you know, interior fabrics and they've got models of the cars in various color schemes. And uh, they've there's one of a photo of a Lincoln that's essentially disassembled for photography purposes, internal Ford photography purposes. It's like you're a fly on the wall. You're getting a secret glimpse into the industry. Right. And a secret glimpse of things that uh, you don't see anymore. You mentioned the Lincoln. So that particular year when they were thinking of interior colors, they had yellow, the color of a chick, and then they had pink and lilac. And those aren't colors I normally think of when I'm thinking about a Lincoln. And you know how Daryl knows that along with my other brother, they spent hundreds of hours with the printers, the retouchers, researching the original color because these original transparencies, the color had shifted so much 
that the, a tremendous amount of work had to be done to bring those colors back to their original, although you could argue that they are actually better than the original. Right. Well, you don't actually know what the original colors are, except in cases the internet is such a great tool for information about older model cars because, I mean, yes, there's going to be some variation, but we could go back to 1959 when we were restoring the image of the Chevrolet Impala and look for a specific blue because the original transparency now doesn't contain the original colors. They've all been altered. And uh, Maurice, you mentioned that there were a lot of color images in this book. This is the first book of the three that we've done that includes color images. And we had no idea that it was going to be so difficult. And about half of the images are color. And I'd say a color image easily takes four times the time to restore it just because of the color shifts and damage to the uh, the transparencies. By the way, would this book have even been possible 20 or 30 years ago based on the technology required to restore the images? That's a great question. Well, 20 or 30 years ago, the damage wouldn't have been as much. So some of these images now are approaching 50 or 60 years. And one lesson we learned is that we need to try and capture digitally as many of the color original transparencies that we have, because they're only going to continue to degrade, even if they're you know, in a closet in climate controlled circumstances. Black and white is much more stable than, than the color. Uh, also, most of this was Kodachrome. Later on in the 70s and 80s, other manufacturers like Fuji um, started to make high quality color film. And I know, for instance, the last several Sports Illustrated swimsuit issues my dad did, he would shoot both Kodachrome and uh, Fujichrome because each had uh, its own strength. So one might be you know, at sunset and one might be used during the middle of the day. Horsepower Heritage will be back right after this. If you're enjoying this episode, check out my interview with photographer Ed Justice Jr. Uh, Jackie Stewart, I was next to Jackie one time, and I've, I've seen him multiple times, been with him multiple times at Indianapolis over the years. And we're talking, we're down on the gra- grid. The cars are on the track right prior to gentlemen start your engines. And he's explaining how nothing in his life has ever equaled what we're experiencing right now, this, the excitement, this crowd, the energy, the whole just, um, spectacle. you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the greatest spectacle in racing. Yeah, the spectacle. The only thing he said that beats this is when he was in Vatican Square and the Pope came out. Now that sort of puts it into perspective. That's episode 60 from May 18th, 2022. And now back to the show. Well, I think we should talk about some of these photos. This is obviously a challenge. This is an audio only format. So there are four sections to the book, dreams, design, culture, and racing. We talked about some of the show cars like the Buick Centurion, but also your dad photographed the Mercury Turnpike cruiser which was a super wild design i think 57 uh he photographed the packard predictor show car which was packard's last show car before they went under again another wild design but he also captured the 50 millionth 
General Motors car produced, which was a 1955 Chevy Bel Air. And many, many parts in this car were gold plated and the paint itself was a glittering gold. And that was kind of an, an event in and of itself, wasn't it? Yeah. So you can just imagine we're not car people and coming across those photos. And that assignment happened to be unpublished by Life magazine. So that that means it's not coming with any identifying captions. So I am a researcher. So that's, I absolutely love digging in and then being finding out what the event was. And that was such a spectacle. And especially now hearing about well, the 50 millionth parade was in Flint, Michigan, and it looks like a ticker tape parade in New York City. You know, so knowing what we know now about Flint with the water and the uh, how it's just on such hard times, it's just hard to imagine that it was once this, the epicenter of the car industry like that. The parade, I think, represents the heyday, the zenith, uh, because they gave the school kids the free days. They let them go out of school so that they could attend with their families. And my father has grand vistas with thousands of people in it, but then he also has details of the men lining the parade, wearing their hats, and GM gave them all gold feathers to wear in their hats because every man uh, wore hats in those days. So we don't really know uh, as much. It would be fun for you to actually weigh in, uh, Maurice, because our takeaway was GM was really ahead of its time as far as marketing. Looking at these photos, you know, they had a parade with all their newest models and they were giving out, you know, medallions that were branding the the, uh, company uh, in a way that we're familiar with. We have images. I think there's one in the book of the CEO. Uh, oh, there is Harlan Curtis on a huge screen that makes it seem like he's Steve Jobs at an Apple conference. No, you're absolutely right. General Motors had 50% of the market share in the United States in those days. It was the zenith of Detroit. It was billed as the city of the future. You know, after the war, the auto industry took off, even though some manufacturers fell by the wayside. The, the, the lesser brands couldn't compete, and they went out of business. But Detroit was a vibrant city of, I think, 1.8 million during the 1950s. I could, get, I could have that number wrong, but um, it was the high point. Uh, I mentioned the Packard Predictor show car. Sadly, Packard went out of business uh, in 1959. And as we speak right now, they're demolishing the Packard plant on Grand Avenue in Detroit, which was considered an architectural touchstone uh, for the city. And there were, for decades, there were plans to revitalize it, but it fell into decay and and now it's, now it's being bulldozed. So there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a bittersweet sense too, when I look at these images to know where we have been and where things are now. And I mean, I don't want to be too gloomy. I, Detroit is on its way up in many ways. And and the auto industry, you know, the EV revolution is changing things so rapidly. I think this optimism in many ways has returned to the city. Oh, you know, there's a photo. Speaking of Detroit in those days, your dad had taken a photo of auto workers leaving, uh, I think, a General Motors plant at the end of the day. We don't actually know which uh, plant it is. We think because all of them are 
smiling that it's after their work shifts and not going uh, to their work shifts in the morning. Yeah, it's an interesting photo. So it's like probably there's several hundred people in the photograph. It looks like your dad took the photo from like a catwalk, a high point over the crowd, uh, let's say. And some of them are looking at the camera sort of suspiciously. Others, as you say, are smiling. And I don't know, it's just kind of an interesting slice of life, right? And it's an image that it shows you the men and women who built that industry, which is pretty cool. It's a really wide uh, demographic. I think of that as a self uh, as a portrait of America in 1955, or at, at least a portrait of Detroit. But that would also be an example of my father looking for a unique perspective for the viewer. So you say he's from a catwalk, but he's also directly in front of the stream of people. So everyone is facing the viewer. And when we had this photo reproduced at a large size and in the show in Carmel recently, there were so many people. This was one of the most popular images. And I think it's so engaging facing that large amount of humanity, but also being able to identify individual faces. And people would just stand in front of it and look at all the different faces, the men, the women. Uh, That's one of my favorite images from from the show and the book. Well, and that's what's, and so then there's the auto workers and then he also covered the auto executives and the designers. And we sprinkled all the people involved uh, throughout the book. Right. So there's a picture of Henry Ford II and Ernie Breach, who was, uh, I guess, the CEO of Ford at the time or president of Ford Motor Company. I can't remember which. They're sitting in what, a Thunderbird? And so the photo's taken from the back of the car, and both men are turned to face the camera and kind of have their arms over the back of the car. And it's a little bit cozy, <laughs> but. Well, and it's also convertible that the top is off. So you have an unobstructed view of the two people. But I would like to point out that Henry Ford II is in the driver's seat, literally. Yes, th- that's important. That's an important detail. And I think that's a 55 Thunderbird, you know, the first year of the car. It's funny, Maurice, because there's, you know, for every shot that is in the book, there's so many photos that aren't. And my dad, uh, the story was on Ernie Breach. And my dad was kind of famous for always, uh, there was a one exhibition of his work that was called One More Take, because he would always be asking for one more picture, right? And so he follows Breach and Henry Ford II around, and they're on that famous catwalk way up um, that you see in that movie, Ford versus Ferrari. They're out in the snow looking at cars and Henry Ford II just looks like he's completely out of patience on some of these, on some of the shots. Well, there's a really interesting uh, juxtaposition there. Uh, My sister mentioned the show, uh, the shot where Henry Ford and Breach are on the catwalk above the assembly line. So they're looking down, literally looking down on their employees. And if you compare that to the picture of Harlow Curtis of General Motors that's in the book, he's celebrating the 50 millionth car. So he visits the assembly line and he kneels down and reaches into the pits to shake the hands of the workers. That's, and he's smiling. Uh, and I'm worried, you know, is he going to tumble into the, the pit there? Uh, but The he, workers look a little taken back. <laughs> You know, but it's just interesting because I think 
the the personalities of those two leaders of Ford and General Motors must have been so different. And their relationship with their workers. Right. And it's illustrated in those photographs. Yeah, I think Henry Ford is was sort of famously aloof. But that's a tough job, you know, you're either loved or hated, I think, most of the time. If I if I think about people like Bob Lutz or Lee Iacocca, you know, it's a polarizing place to be. That's true. Although Harlow Curtis was the one who spearheaded the parade for the 50 millionth car, and they definitely wanted to involve the whole community and celebrate families. Because you look at some of those photographs and the streets are lined with families. They went out of their way to include the kids and and he work. was out mingling with the crowd, and he seemed to be really enjoying it. He didn't have much of a security detail that I could tell from the photos. I don't think they did that. Back. No, I think you're right. I mean, those images definitely stand out for that reason. Another executive that we ought to mention that your dad photographed was Robert McNamara, who later became Secretary of Defense uh, in the Kennedy administration. And he was one of the so-called whiz kids, right? So can you tell us a little bit more about that? I just, uh, I know that there was a, a new crop of young executives who were brought on board to transform the company. Well, the Wiz Kids were a group of kind of young up and comers at Ford, but then also at the Rand Corporation in Santa Monica, you know, which had its tentacles deep into government. Um, so McNamara was one of those guys and his photo is kind of a three-quarter view, and he's got a slight smile on his face, which I think would disappear very quickly once he got into government. Yeah, that photo was a surprise to me when we found that and included it in the book, because I only knew him as the, um, the person in the Kennedy administration. Well, McNamara was one of the guys who was pushing for smaller cars in the Ford line towards the end of the 1950s. So cars like the Ford Falcon, um, which, you know, was a small economy car. So yeah, he, he was influential at Ford for sure. By the way, one of my favorite photos of people in the book is of Carroll Shelby in his racing days. And this, I think was taken at the, the Cuban Grand Prix, right? Correct. Yes. 1958. Basically, it's a close-up. He's in his racing helmet, and he's kind of got a little bit of a far-off expression on his face. He's contemplative. Yeah, that's one of my favorite uh, portraits that we have in the book because it's so uh, intimate, so close-up. That helmet is just uh, a throwback, isn't it? <laughs> it looks like a pith helmet. Yeah, it looks like a polo helmet. It doesn't look like it would offer any project, uh, protection at all. You know, and um, just a word about the 1958, we have some interesting pictures from that assignment because my, I think what happened was Juan Manuel Fangio had won the Grand Prix the year before. And then in 1958, he was kidnapped on the eve of the race by Fidel Castro's rebels. So at that point, I think Sports Illustrated said to my dad, go down there and, and cover this uh, event. So it's there's not race coverage, but there is fascinating um, shots of Fangio being returned, um, being released, and the crowd. It's a big spectacle, and the crowd is all around him. And then there's a you know there was this uh, really beautiful portrait of Carol Shelby in there, and and I, I think Maurice, you can tell us, but 
that was a tragic year for the race. There were the it was a circuit in the streets and a car lost control and actually killed a number of spectators. Yeah, you know, th- those years in racing were tragic all over the world. Not only were race drivers being killed at a rate of 2 to 3 a year, but the cars post-war had gotten so much faster. Um, but braking technology, tire technology, those sorts of things hadn't really caught up to the the power capabilities, I would argue. And so you pick virtually any major race in those years and, uh, well, particularly road racing, there were spectators killed. Certainly the most infamous example would be the Le Mans disaster in 1955, where over 80 people were killed in the crowd. And then, of course, there were races like the Milimilia and the Targa Florio where, where spectators lost their lives. So yes, good point. The other thing about Shelby, Shelby's helmet is basically the same helmet they started using in the 1930s, almost no protection. It was an incredibly dangerous time in racing, which brings up another photo that your dad took, which was a 1959 cover of Sports Illustrated. And the subject is Phil Hill and his Ferrari. That's one of his best-known covers, and it's also one of the earliest. At the time, Phil Hill was new to Ferrari. He hadn't yet won the Formula One World Championship, but he was winning lots of sports car races for Ferrari at the time. And um, he was making history because the last time an American had won a Grand Prix in Europe was the 1920s. Uh, That's a neat portrait because he looks so relaxed and the, the kind of the Californian attitude leaning against his Ferrari. No question about it. And oftentimes his expression was not so jovial. You know, he was deep in focus or you saw the strain and exhaustion on his face. But in this photo, it's great. It Like he's got the world on a string. And it's interesting too. That view is similar to the view of the auto workers in Detroit in that it's elevated and directly in front of the subject. Uh, And because of that, you get to see both Phil Hill and the car. And then the photo was taken for the cover. So he left, my father left extra space in the background on the top of the photo because he knew the masthead for Sports Illustrated was going to go there. Phil Hill was being named racer of the year or sportsman of the year. And so they knew it was going to be a cover and they composed it with the extra space on top. Hey, there's one more personality in the book that I think deserves a mention, and that's a gangster named Frank Costello. Tell us about that. So uh, my brother, Greg, who is a wonderful photo editor, was so instrumental. You know, there were hundreds and hundreds of photos that we had to narrow down to about 200 for this book. And Greg had to make a case. And Daryl and I didn't think that the, <laughs> that the mobster, Frank Costello, should have been included because it was rather removed from... The- it was not directly enough connected to, to cars, and the book is about automobiles. But then my brother did additional research and included some of the interior deal- details, but then also included an exterior of the car. So you could tell that it was a Cadillac, and then it made more sense that this mob boss was being picked up by a Cadillac limousine. And uh, 
So the motto of your website is it's all about the people and the stories behind the machines. And so it's a car book, but it's also about the people. But how far out from that do you go into the story? You know, and so um, that was, I guess it was a good problem to have. We had so many terrific pictures. By the way, you know, I forgot to mention the Ford Mustang One concept car. There's a series of shots that your dad took at Ford Motor Company with a guy named Roy Lunn, who was in charge of the Ford Advanced Vehicle Design Center in the late 50s and early 60s. And Roy Lunn was, um, he was actually an Englishman who emigrated to the United States, but he started working for Ford in England. And um, so he is with some of his young designers and engineers. They're looking over the Ford Mustang One concept car, which Never went into production. It's, it was a four-cylinder, two-seater sports car, I think mid-engine. But the name Mustang lived on. You know, I mean, I don't need to talk to you about the Mustang, but it really captures like an era very well. Well, I think you've said that so well. There's not much I can add, Maurice. But, uh, you know, that uh, particular portrait was uh, for done for an essay in Time Life Books. It was like an encyclopedia of different subjects. And this one was on the engineer and this, uh, the, the photo essay was about uh, the fabrication of the Mustang from concept to shipping them out from the factory to consumers. And so it was a process essay. And um, my dad was great at capturing all of the steps in that production process. But you're right, Maurice, it is a time capsule because he's with three fellow engineers and they've got the white shirts and the thin black ties and the pocket protectors. Yeah. And the horn rimmed glasses, the uh, collegiate haircuts. I mean, it's just like a slice right out of the era. And the Mustang one was a pretty ambitious concept for the time. I mean, as I said, it was a mid engine. It's got a, a wedge front end, which didn't really get popular until the 1970s. So in some ways it was ahead of its time. Right. It doesn't look like what we know of as the, you know, the famous Mustang production model at all. Uh, on a personal note, you know, people often say, was your father a big car fan? Was he into cars? And as a kid growing up, I would have said, well, not really. But then this particular story obviously had a big effect on him. He met the designer of the Mustang. He saw it being produced and he bought one as a family car. So we had a station wagon, but we also had a dark blue Mustang sedan. It wasn't the fastback model. But I remember as a little kid, it had that little 289 emblem. Terry McDonald in his introduction said that the 289 model was a V8. That's why my mother never liked that car. She had three kids and a dog, and she said it was such a powerful car. And she was, we had a, we lived in Stanford, Connecticut, and we had a house in Vermont, and she'd be driving us up through the snow. And it was, from that perspective, kind of an impractical choice. There's another remarkable photo which illustrates your dad's creativity, always looking for a new angle on his subject. And that's, a photo of the field at the Indianapolis 500 going into turn one in 1961. Right. So you can't see the car that he's in, but he's in the pace car. And you look at the picture and as a viewer, you're right there 
in the middle of the race course. And uh, it's similar to a lot of his other famous um, sports-related photos. He wanted to put the camera in the middle of the action to give the viewer the most immediate and powerful view of the action. And uh, we do have some photos of him when he was on a test track. The picture we have of him, the production shot, shows that he's sitting in the trunk of the car with the trunk top taken off. But that way he can be right in front of a moving car because that's what he wanted to capture. The the pace car, incidentally, in 61 was a Ford Thunderbird. Oh, you're kidding. Yeah, you didn't know that. That's unli- that doesn't seem... Uh... Like in keeping with the race. Well, by 1958, Ford had rethought the Thunderbird. The first three years of production, 55, 56, and 57, they were all two-seaters. By 58, they realized they'd get much bigger market share if they made it a four-seater. So they did. So, by the way, they sold a heck of a lot more. Wow. I miss that old styling, though. To me, those first uh, three years are the most memorable. And did those models, the, the first ones, did they have a V8? Yes, they did. Absolutely. That was before the 289 era, incidentally. I mean, not to go too nerdy on you guys. That was what you called the Ford Y-Block V8. Maurice, where were you when we were doing this book? <laughs> well, I'll You should have been a, a valued advisor. I'll be happy to consult on volume two. <laughs> okay. Well, you've already given us some corrections for the captions, and thank you for that. You're, you're quite welcome. Uh, there's another cool photo from the early seventies, I think, isn't it? Uh, it's a bunch of VW bugs on the dirt at Riverside. So maybe you can tell us a little about that. We know that it was the first AC Delco championship off-road racing, um, at Riverside. And I, from what I read previously, the, those kinds of races were out in the desert like Baja. And so it wasn't really set up for spectators, but this particular race was, and it all took place within the confines of the riverside. Yeah. I don't know details about the particulars of the photo or all I can tell you is that Baja racing got big, you know, late sixties and the VW bug was a great cheap way to get into Baja racing because it's Rear engine, rear wheel drive, it's lightweight, easily modified. Well, I believe that this first AC Delco championship was the brainchild of Mickey Thompson. So one of the reasons that we included that photo, and it's actually a spread with an off-road driver, Bob Hood, on the right, and then this photo of the VW on the left. And we wanted to include that because it's a distinctive part of racing that normally isn't covered, but that then also the portrait of Bob Hood, it's after the race and he's completely covered with mud on his face. Uh, He's got his goggles off, but he's wearing the biggest smile. And we just thought that that captured something about racing that was really unique that wasn't captured in the other racing photos. No, it's great. And he's even got some mud on his teeth. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. And Daryl, by the way, there's one particular photo in the book that has a special family connection, right? Yes. Yes, that's true. Uh, it's a picture of, I believe, a Dodge Monaco at night on a freeway overpass. There's a woman driving the car with a big sheepdog in the passenger seat. But the family connection is that the woman driving the car is my mother. And she often modeled and worked with my father in front of his lens. But then with her background in accounting, she eventually became his business manager and agent. I'm glad we got your mom in there because she deserves a lot of credit. It sounds like they were a pretty good team. 
They were. The book is dedicated to my mother. And they were, yes, uh, a team through 40, over 40 years. So one, one thing I wanted to say about my father's background was that the introduction by Terry McDonald in the Auto America book is really good. And so I'm sure we didn't do my father justice, but if, if people uh, have access to the book and can read it, they'll get a, a really good introduction to my father and his work through the Terry McDonald introduction. Yeah, that was terrific. Terry is a wonderful writer, and uh, he was the managing editor of uh, Sports Illustrated and also a managing editor of Esquire. And one of the founders of Outside Magazine. Yeah. So he was actually at Sports Illustrated as managing editor when my father passed away. And he was instrumental in getting a six page uh, tribute to my father at the beginning of the issue. And he said that people loved my father's photographs at Sports Illustrated so much, the people who worked there, that they, had, they were fighting over which pictures to include. But we were very appreciative of that. Yeah, I think he does a terrific job of um, conjuring up the era and my father's work. I'm glad you mentioned that. It is a great introduction. Was it difficult for your dad to finally retire? Uh, Yes and no. I'll let Linda answer this too. He was such a workaholic that I think it was hard for him to give up that absorption in something. But luckily, when my mother insisted that they move from Southern California up to Spanish Bay, which is part of Pebble Beach, he was able to find other obsessions, tennis and golf, that allowed him to just essentially give up photography. And he said, the only photographs I take now are for my friends' Christmas cards. And we all, my brother, my sister and I, my mother, my father, and my grandfather, all ended up in this area. So. Uh, it was really a fun family time, and uh, we would jokingly say to my mother and father that uh, these were the golden years, and, and they really were. Well, listen, I've got to say the book is a terrific slice of Americana. Anyone who's interested in cars is going to love it. It's called Auto America, Car Culture, 1950s to 1970s from the John G. Zimmerman Archive. Daryl and Linda Zimmerman, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. It was fun. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun for us. We really enjoyed it. That's all for this episode of Horsepower Heritage. Don't forget to click that follow button, leave me five stars, and a quick review. You can also go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash HP Heritage and throw a few bucks in the gas tank. Support the show that way. And I'll see you back here on Wednesday, December 28th for a look back at some of the legends we lost in 2022. So until then, I'm Maurice Merrick. Thanks for listening.